All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. To Martha he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Before we open God's word this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we're thankful that we can be here today to be informed, encouraged, taught, strengthened by your word. An opportunity to pause, slow down, and reflect upon those hours that occurred on that day when our Lord went to the cross to pay for our sins. The opportunity to think about just exactly what transpired and how it all led up to a perfect salvation, a salvation that paid for every single sin that we have ever committed, every sin in the history of the world, a salvation that would be offered free of charge at no cost to us, though it cost our Lord so very much. Now, Father, as we take this time to pause and work through the gospel accounts of our Lord's crucifixion. We pray that you might open the eyes of our soul, that we might understand more fully what you have accomplished for us and at what it cost our Lord. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bible with me to Mark, excuse me, Matthew 27, 31. Matthew 27, 31. Somebody's got an alarm or something going off. Hmm? Amber alert. Okay, well. Matthew twenty-seven thirty-one, which is not the passage that is on the title slide, so we'll have to fix that. Matthew twenty-seven thirty-one to 35 is our base passage. As I've been going through this final period in our Lord's life on the earth during the time of the Incarnation, I had slowed down to give us a full picture of what he is going through by combining the accounts that we have in the four Gospels. That gives us a full picture. It takes a little longer to go through, but it helps us to put all of these parts together so that we can understand it um, a little better. As we have covered this in the previous lessons, we have seen that Jesus has now gone through these six trials, the three religious trials and then the three civil or criminal trials. He has finished the sixth trial by Pilate, and Pilate has now acquiesced to the pressure of the religious leaders and the multitudes that have been uh, ginned up by the religious leaders to oppose anything less than crucifixion. And we hear the the crowd screaming for crucifixion. Their bloodlust is up, and they will be happy with nothing less than the death of our Lord. 
the Roman soldiers have begun to beat him and to scourge him, first with the uh, Roman flagrum, which would have ripped the skin off of his back and dug deeply into the muscles of his back and his sides as the uh, straps of leather with stone and metal embedded in them would have wrapped around his body and just ripped the flesh and produced a significant amount of bleeding at this particular point as they have scourged him. Then they have ridiculed him. They have uh, mocked him and derided him, and they have made a crown of thorns that they have forced down on his head, which would have, again, uh, brought more bleeding. Their beatings have left his face unrecognizable, He has been uh, brutally uh, punished and tortured as they prepare to uh, lead him away to crucifixion. In John 19.6, we saw that when the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out saying, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate, who has washed his hands of this, says, you take him and crucify him. I find no fault in him. He is faultless. Even Pilate saw that. He was without sin. He was being taken uh, to the cross with no legal basis whatsoever. But the religious leaders claimed that he had committed blasphemy by claiming to be the Son of God, claiming to be the King of the Jews. And so, indeed, he was the Son of God. He was the King of the Jews. He is the Son of God today and the King of the Jews, and he Um, went to the cross for what he is. In John 19.15, the crowds cry out, scream out literally, crucify him, crucify him. They reject his claim to be the king, which has been the theme in Matthew that Jesus is presented as the king of the Jews. And they reject that, saying, we have no king but Caesar. And then we're told in verse 16, Pilate delivered him to them to be crucified. Then they took Jesus and led him away. This is where we pick up our narrative this morning. Have you ever given much time to just reflecting upon what is going on step by step, stage by stage, during this time and throughout this particular day? Here we have Jesus. He is the Son of Man. He's also called the second Adam. He is everything that a human being was designed to be by God, and he was designated the one who would receive the kingdom and be given the kingdom according to Daniel chapter 7, and yet he has been rejected by his people. As John says in John 1, he came to his own, but his own received him not. He was rejected by most of them, accepted by only a few. But he is also the Son of God, the eternal, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent God who rules over the universe. He holds it together in his deity. And he came to the earth to demonstrate his love for mankind and to pay for the sins of the world. And yet he's rejected He's maligned, he's beaten, he's tortured, he's ridiculed, and he is sentenced to one of the most torturous 
and painful deaths ever devised in human history, all to pay for your sins and mine. So this morning, what I want to do is begin to walk step by step through the different stages of the crucifixion. As we look at the accounts in Matthew, in Mark, in Luke, and in John, we see certain similarities, but each author, in relation to their own purposes, will focus in on different things, different aspects, add different perspectives related to their particular uh, focus and their particular purpose. And so often as we read through these accounts, we think there might be some contradictions. Things are a little different. Sometimes they're told in different order because these events, some of these events happened simultaneously. And so one writer might list them in one order. Another writer may list them in another order, but actually they're just saying this happened and this happened, this happened and this happened, and they're not giving a chronological sequence. They are simply describing uh, what has happened. Uh, I was impressed many years ago when we had Dr. Fruchtenbaum here, and he taught through the life of Messiah from a Jewish perspective, and he identified 32 different stages in this period from the time they lead Jesus away from Pilate until the completion of the of the crucifixion. I sat down in Kiev about four days ago and started reading through the gospel accounts and started making my own list of the stages, and I got through about the first 20. I haven't completed it, but got through about the first 20 and compared those with his and was surprised that they're pretty much identical. The only difference is that he tends to focus on Mark as a priority gospel. I focus on Matthew and Luke to give the chronology. And so our order is a little different, but the events are, are still basically, uh, basically the same. So what we're going to begin with this morning is the first part of this, which is the procession to Golgotha, which is stages one through five, the procession to Golgotha. Now, if you look at the picture that I found to put up there, I was actually looking for an, someone that had an accurate picture. I couldn't find one. Reason it's not accurate is because the, the one who was crucified, the criminal, the one who was charged, carried the uh, patibulum, which is the cross piece. He didn't carry the whole cross. The uh, stipes, which was the vertical piece, was uh, already in place, and so they just carried the cross piece, but I couldn't find that anywhere. But it gives an, a, the impression of what that there were crowds, the, the streets were lined with people. There were the women who are weeping and wailing and lamenting, uh, for Jesus, as well as the two other criminals. They're in this procession as well. And so these probably were professional mourners, and we'll look at that because Luke is the only one who brings that uh, that element out. But <clears throat> we must understand how weak the, our Lord was at this point, having gone through the beatings and the whippings and everything else, that he would not have been able to carry that that cross uh, for very long. So in the first stage, we simply read in each gospel account 
the simple sentence. They led Jesus out to be crucified. They don't embellish it. They don't go into um, sort of a macabre detail. They just, it's very simple. As I read the accounts again and again, I'm impressed at the economy of words used by the Holy Spirit, how simple the description is, because it is, the content of it is what becomes so powerful. So in Matthew 27, 31, they led him away to be crucified. Mark 15, 20 uh, uses a little different word, same base. They led him out to be crucified, that is, out from the praetorium. And John 19, 16, then they took Jesus and led him away. He uses the same verb that Mark uses, uh, apago, in the Greek. Now, here we're going to have to take a few moments to get adjusted to the geography of the city of Jerusalem at the time of Jesus. We will come back to this time and again dealing with different aspects of this um, uh, of this event. Your, the map itself is facing north, going north this, this way towards the top to the east, there is the temple complex. Just to the northeast of the temple complex is the Antonio Fortress, and we are, the scene of all of our action is on the western side of what is now the old city of Jerusalem, and it is surrounding this area here where you have Herod's Fortress as well as the Praetorium, and then just to the north of that, just if you follow this yellow line here, it it, it describes this wall that is called Josephus's second north wall that he speaks about. It comes from the north to the south here, makes a corner here. This is very important to determining the location of Golgotha, and then comes south, and then <clears throat> it joins uh, Josephus's first north wall. That's that's important. This purple wall here is the Josephus's third wall, it's not built until 41. Not realizing that has caused to a lot of confusion down through the centuries. It wasn't determined until about the 1970s that this, this purple wall was not the wall at the time of Jesus. So as the scripture says, Jesus is crucified outside the wall, which is this wall that is outlined in yellow here. So this action is taking place here. Now, if you come from a Roman Catholic background, you're familiar with the uh, Way of Tears, the Via Dolorosa, built on the tradition of the Roman Catholic Church. And on that tradition, uh, Jesus is brought to the uh, Antonio Fortress where that, they identified that, and that was an older identification. Many people agreed with that, that this was where the Praetorium was located. This is where uh, Pilate would have tried Jesus. That is not the view anymore. It has been discovered that the Praetorium was located near uh, Herod's Fortress. Uh, over here, this is near, if you've been to Jerusalem today, this is near the Jaffa Gate on the, on the west side of Jerusalem. So the Via Dolorosa has Jesus coming from the Antonio Fortress. In fact, if you walk the uh, Via Dolorosa in Jerusalem, there is a uh, <clears throat> an archway there, and uh, embedded in that are the words, Echo 
homo, behold the man, marking the site where they believe this is where Pilate made this statement to the crowd. I don't think any of that is accurate. Uh, This is a much longer route. Jesus would walk from here. Then he would make a turn, and there's a street there. goes by a really great uh, falafel place and a great pizza place. Then it makes another turn right about here and goes down and takes you to what is today the Church of the Holy Holy Sepulchre. I believe that on the basis of what I've been reading in recent years, the Praetorium is located here. So this isn't nearly as far, nearly as long a distance from the Praetorium to to Golgotha, probably uh, 200 to 300 yards at the most, probably closer to 200 yards. So this is the area we're going to zero in on right now. And in these discussions, the Praetorium here, Jesus would have been taken away or out from uh, the Praetorium and then walked through this gate here and walked uh, north to the location of the... um, of Golgotha where he was crucified. This is a three-dimensional type portrayal of a map. This shows the same area. Here's Golgotha. Here's the uh, praetorium down in this section right here. And so they would have walked Jesus this way through this gate outside, outside the city wall to Golgotha where he was to be crucified. Now, we do have extra-biblical sources that have mentioned Jesus and his crucifixion. They are listed in Daryl Bach's commentary on Luke. Uh, There is the writing of Mara Bar Serapion, who wrote about 73, said, For what advantage did the Jews gain by the death of their wise king? Because from that same time their kingdom was taken away. Then you have a statement from Josephus, which is frequently quoted, who wrote, Pilate, upon hearing him accused by men of the highest standing among us, had condemned him to be crucified. There are statements by Agapius in a book of the title. He just basically summarizes what Josephus said. There's the Roman historian Tacitus, who in his annals says this name, uh, that is Christian, originates from Christus, who was sentenced to death by the procurator Pontius Pilate during the reign of Tiberius. And in the Babylonian Talmud, in Tractate Sanhedrin 43, this is a Jewish commentary on on the Mishnah, states, On the eve of the Passover, they hanged Jesus the Nazarene, and a herald went out in front of him for 40 days saying, now that's not accurate, Uh, he is going to be stoned because he practiced sorcery and enticed and led Israel astray. Anyone who knows anything in his favor, let him come and plead on his behalf. But not having found anything in his favor, they hanged him on the eve of Passover. Now, they don't agree in with the Bible in details or with each other in details. The point is they all agree that Jesus was a historical figure, that the crucifixion happened, that it happened at the time of Pontius Pilate. And so this is affirmation. You will hear some today who say 
Jesus wasn't historical, Jesus didn't exist, it proved this, and here are five contemporary sources that all affirm he existed and that he was crucified at the time of Pontius Pilate. Now, as Jesus is led away to be crucified, we learn from Plutarch that it was the standard procedure for every criminal who was to be executed to carry his own cross on his back. That wasn't the full cross, just the cross beam, the uh, patibulum, and that would be the instrument of his own punishment according to, uh, according to, to Plutarch. Uh, usually the patibulum was laid across the back of the neck or shoulders. According to one writer, they, they would carry it like this, bent over, like a, carrying it like a sack of potatoes on their back. Then there are others, and you'll see artist depictions where it's tied going across their shoulders. I'm not sure there's going to ever be any consensus on just exactly how that transpired. But Jesus could not carry it for long. He was physically too weak. So in the second second stage, we learn that the soldiers grab a man from the crowd named Simon of Cyrene, and they conscript him to carry Jesus's cross. Luke 23, 26 tells us, now as they led him away, they laid hold of a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, who was coming from the country, and on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. See, if you remember what I showed you on the map, outside of that wall there is a gate, and there was a road that came in from the west. And so as travelers came into the city, they would be walking by this place of execution. And that was the whole point in the Roman system, was to crucify those who were threats to the power of Rome and to make their death, their execution, as horrible as it possibly could be and do it in a place where people would see it and that it would be a lesson uh, to them. Simon was a a Cyrenian. uh, Cyrenica was an area Libya today. Cyrene was located on the coast. It was a Roman colony, a Roman city. He was a Jew from that area, and he had come to Jerusalem to worship at Passover. Now, there's an interesting statement made by Mark in relation to him. Mark says that he's the father of Alexander and Rufus. Now, that wouldn't make a whole lot of difference for most of us, but Mark is writing to the church in Rome. He is, most people believe, and I think accurately, he is writing for Peter. He is writing down Peter's account of the life of Jesus. And so he mentions Alexander and Rufus because they would have had meaning to his audience. And if we read in Romans 16.13, we read a statement by Paul at the end of the epistle, Greet Rufus, chosen, that is, a choice one in the Lord. He had a special status in the church in Rome, and <clears throat> as well as his mother and mine. And so there are many who believe that that this statement by Mark it indicates that this, same, this is the same Rufus, and if so, then he was 
the son of Simon and would indicate that Simon had become a believer, although we can't say that with certainty. It certainly makes sense that one who had helped the Lord carry his cross uh, to uh, Golgotha would have seen something different, just as the centurion did, that this was not a man who screamed and resisted and yelled and wept as the others did, but one who was calm and relaxed all the way to his death. The third step on the way to Golgotha is Jesus comments to a group of women that are mourners. And we learn that there is a multitude of women, uh, probably professional mourners. Some may have been women from among his own followers, but I believe they were professional mourners. You also have the uh, other other, uh, two who were crucified with Jesus who were being taken to Golgotha at the same time. And so these professional mourners are weeping and wailing. They are, according to Luke 23:27, they mourned and they lamented him. So they are wailing. They are weeping. They are beating their breasts. They are going through all of the external motions of those who are deeply grieved. Whether they were actually or not is not the point of this episode. The point of this episode is what Jesus says to them. He states in verse 28, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. I think it is fascinating that as our Lord is going through all of this physical torment, as he's been tortured, as he's been beaten, as he has attempted to carry uh, the patibulum to the site of the execution, that he pauses along the way, and you see this statement of grace and compassion, genuine compassion to these women. As he addresses them, he <clears throat> warns them of that which will come. He addresses them as the daughters of Jerusalem not as women, but as the daughters of Jerusalem. These are women of Jerusalem. And he's going to warn them of the coming uh, assault and destruction of Jerusalem in this statement. And Jerusalem will bear the brunt of the Roman wrath in the uh, revolt, the Jewish revolt of 66 to 70. Jerusalem will be finally destroyed after months of siege and so many um, thousands, hundreds of thousands will be killed at that time. And so Jesus says, don't weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. He goes on to say, for indeed the days are coming. And this statement, behold, days are coming, is as it were lifted out of the prophets. It indicates that a key period of God's wrath is coming. And it is a warning. The days are coming in which they will say, and so this is stated as a proverb, but it's a proverb that is the reverse of what would normally be said. Normally, there would be a statement of blessing. Blessed are those whose wombs are fruitful. 
Blessed are those who have many children. Blessed are those who are, are fruitful and who multiply. But in this coming time of judgment, everything will be turned backwards and upside down. Everything is turned over because of the horrors of what will uh, take place. And so what he says here is three things. He says, blessed are the barren, that is, those who were never able to have children. Secondly, he reinforces that with a synonymous ideal, wombs that never bore, and third, breasts which never nourished. So he is emphasizing through this threefold repetition that we're blessing on those who have no children because of the horrors that are going to come at this time. And then in Luke 23.30, he states, Then they will begin to say, that is, at the time of this judgment, then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. What is going on here? This is a quotation from Hosea chapter 10, verse 8. It is a statement of a historical event that is a picture of a future uh, time of judgment. We've gone through this before where we've talked about the different ways that the Old Testament is used and quoted in the New Testament, that sometimes it's a literal prophecy, and with a literal fulfillment, such as in Micah 5.2, where uh, the prophecy is that Bethlehem, Ephrata, would be the birthplace of the Messiah. It's a literal prophecy and literal fulfillment. But then there are other examples where you have a historical statement. For example, in Hosea, where it states that out of Egypt I will call my son, that's talking about something that happened historically at the time of the Exodus, and that, uh, but that is a picture or a type of something that will happen in the time of the Messiah. And so this is being quoted that way by the Lord that the, this event that happened in the Old Testament is a picture of also of future judgment. And at that future judgment, they'll call upon the mountains to cover us, to hide us to protect us from the wrath that is coming. The historical event relates to the destruction of the northern kingdom of Israel, uh, known as Samaria here in verse 7, that the northern kingdom was destroyed by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. And the statement goes on to say, As for Samaria, her king is cut off like a twig on the water. Also the high places of Avin, that is the high places where they worship the false idols, the sin of Israel shall be destroyed. The thorn and the thistle shall grow on their altars. Where else do we read of thorn and thistle combined? Go back to Genesis chapter 3 and the judgment. So this is a picture of judgment on their sin. And what they say as they are being surrounded and defeated by the Assyrians is they will call to the mountains to cover us and to the hills to fall on us. This is a vivid metaphorical expression as they are expressing how horrific this judgment is and their desire just to crawl into the ground and to be uh, protected. 
We also see this same imagery in Revelation chapter 6 with the sixth seal judgment as there is this horrific uh, asteroid shower that, that is slaughtering uh, thousands upon the earth that the kings and the leaders of the earth are crawling into the caves, shaking their fists at God and seeking, calling upon the mountains to protect them and to cover them. So this is clearly a statement that is used to describe the horrors of divine judgment. And so Luke 23.30 uses an Old Testament passage talking about judgment upon Israel to depict the horrors that will come again in A.D. 70 when the Romans will come and destroy uh, Jerusalem. And so he says that it is better for them to mourn for themselves than to mourn for him. And then in the next verse, in the next verse there, we read a statement that seems somewhat uh, a little bit obscure to us, and I have lost my, here it is. He states in verse 31, I don't have the slide on this, for if they do these things in the green wood, what will be done in the dry? Now, if I were sitting in a classroom like I was in the last couple of weeks, I'd say, well, explain that to me. Tell me what that means. In your daily Bible reading, how would you understand that? That would be somewhat uh, difficult to understand exactly what that means. But this was a statement that was made uh, in the in the Old Testament, similarly or roughly in Ezekiel chapter uh, 20, uh, verse 47. And what this statement is saying basically is, Jesus said, if I suffer this much and I am innocent, how much more are you going to suffer because you are guilty? That's the idea there in that in that statement that emphasizes the if they do these things in the green wood, when everything is right, when everything is good and, and green and prosperous, if they will destroy the king at that time, what then will happen when things are dry? David Flusser, who is, was a Jewish scholar at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem and wrote a number of large works dealing with uh, Jesus and the New Testament states uh, regarding this uh, this verse, the green wood is difficult to kindle, while the dry is easy to burn. If the life of the pious Jesus ends with a tragedy, what will happen to sinful Jerusalem? The disaster becomes inevitable, but there is hope for Jerusalem in a distant future when the times of the Gentiles will be completed. This is an excellent understanding of the meaning of this passage. Jesus is warning about what will come because of their rejection of him because of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit that was announced in Matthew chapter 12, that unforgivable sin. Not that it wasn't forgivable for eternity, but that in time that generation would go through the divine judgment of A.D. 70. This brings us to the fourth stage. The fourth stage is the arrival at Golgotha, called the Place of the Skull. 
So we need to ask a couple of questions. What exactly is the meaning of this word Golgotha, and what is the meaning of the word Calvary? It's Calvary, not Cavalry. Just make sure you get the L in the right spot there. Uh, What does that refer to when it says it's the place of the skull? Does that mean that this place, it looks like a skull, that the the uh, rock wall there, which was actually an abandoned quarry that it if you looked at it, it would look like a skull, or as some suggest, does it mean that there were skulls of the dead scattered on the ground, or as others suggest, does it just simply mean that there were graves there and of course skulls inside of the graves so let 's look at the meaning of the word. For, Calvary, for, for Golgotha and Calvary. Matthew and Mark use the word Golgotha. It's an Aramaic term um, that indicates a, the place of a skull. That's what it means. Each of the gospel accounts uses the word place. In Luke, Luke uses the Latin phrase when they came to the place called Calvary. John, in his gospel, says he bearing a cross went out to a place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew, Golgotha. The term Golgotha is the Aramaic word, which means skull. So this is characteristic in some way of this location. The Latin phrase for the place of the skull is Calvary locus, as it is in the uh, Latin Vulgate. This is where we get our English word Calvary, and it is simply the Latin equivalent of Golgotha, the place of the skull. There are these two basic views. Uh, One is that some topographical feature looked like a skull, and so it was named after that. Uh, Dwight Pentecost, longtime professor at Dallas Seminary, wrote an excellent book called The Words and Works of Jesus Christ, states that, Uh, the name cannot have been derived from the skulls which lay about since such exposure would have been unlawful and hence must have been due to the skull-like shape and appearance of the place. I think he makes a mistake there thinking there's only two options. It either looked like a skull or there were skulls on the ground. He misses the third option, which I'll talk about in in just, just a minute. Others who have taken that view that it was called the place of the skull because of a topographical feature are Charles Gordon. Charles Gordon is known as Gordon of Khartoum. I found always have found him an interesting guy. I saw his Bible at the British Museum one time, and you could barely read the text because of all of the notes that he wrote everywhere. Uh, he was uh, considered a military genius. He had served in the British Army, and then he was hired as sort of a mercenary general to put down a Chinese rebellion called the Taiping Rebellion, uh, which he did, which earned him another nickname, which was um, Chinese Gordon. After his adventures in China, he came back and toured the Middle East, And he had his own view of where things were. He had his own location for Ararat. He had his own location for uh, where Golgotha was located. And he had his own location of where the tomb was located. This is a depiction of Gordon's Calvary. 
as you can see, it looks something like there might have been uh, at one time only two of these uh, holes there looking like a, a, a skull, but it would, and here would be the nose, but there are pictures of this a hundred years ago where the erosion wasn't as severe as it is today and it doesn't look quite as much. So if you extrapolate back about 2,000 years, you would wonder if it looked anything like a skull. But this is the location of what is today called not Gordon's tomb or Gordon's Calvary, but the garden tomb. They were able to uh, shift the language there just a little bit. It still sounds alike. And this is located on the north side of Jerusalem. And this is a place that many evangelicals love to visit. I love to take my tour groups there when we go because it has more of the feel of what the area where Jesus was crucified was actually like. When you go to where many believe uh, Jesus was crucified, there is a church there. It is a Greek Orthodox church, and it has all of the smells and bells associated with Eastern Orthodoxy, and this really turns off a lot of American uh, evangelicals. However, that is almost without a doubt the accurate location where Jesus was crucified. But you can get a better feel for it here, and it's always nice. We go there, we have the Lord's table, and we talk about uh, some of the different uh, aspects and features of that particular particular area. The, one of the biggest weaknesses of this view is that the identification of a garden uh, this Gordon's Calvary or the Garden Tomb only goes back to 1883. From 33 until 1883, there was no alternative location ever suggested for the crucifixion other than the site of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. In fact, Arnold Fruchtenbaum states that Thirteen consecutive Jewish uh, bishops of Jerusalem all identified that as the location of the crucifixion. In the uh, eighteen, I mean, excuse me, in the nineteen seventies, uh, two Jewish archaeologists in Jerusalem, Gabriel Barquet and Amos Cloner, uh, made the following uh, uh, discoveries. They pointed out that the garden tomb property is right next door to the French school of archaeology called the École Biblique. Whenever we drive up there in the bus, you can see that gate on the right. And all of the tombs there, the tombs just above the garden tomb and the tombs all in that area are first temple tombs that go back to the 8th and 9th century B.C. Jesus was laid, the scripture says, in a new tomb where nobody had ever uh, been laid before, according to uh, John 19.41. But when we come to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, and here's a schematic of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, there are a number of tombs there and in that surrounding area that have been discovered, and they are all Second Temple, late Second Temple period tombs, right at the time of, uh, of, of Jesus. Excavations in the 1970s uh, 
uh, discovered in the northeast part of the uh, found of, of the church, the foundations of Hadrian's Roman Forum, on which he built the Temple of Aphrodite in 135 after the Bar Kokhba rebellion. What Hadrian did. Because he hated the Jews so much, they were so rebellious. There had been this rebellion in 66 to 70 and another rebellion in 135 that he wanted to blot out all memory of, of the Jews. So he renamed Jerusalem Aeoli Capitolina, and he built pagan temples on the holy sites where Christians and Jews would worship. He built a temple to Jupiter and Aphrodite here. He built another temple on the Temple Mount, and he built another temple on the site of the Church of the Nativity, which is probably the site where Jesus was born. He didn't build, put them in other places. He put them right there in those uh, locations. So we can thank Hadrian for marking those locations for us for subsequent uh, subsequent generations. But what I've pointed out here is that Right here you have first century tombs, and you can go in there. I'll show you a picture of those in just a minute. And and this indicates that at in the first century this area was a location of uh, of tombs, which is fits the biblical uh, description. This area here is this is a large uh, <clears throat> tent-like structure called an edicule, which covers the location of the of the tomb of Jesus, and it surprises people because just across here you see the exposed rock. I'll show you a picture of that in just a minute, which is the rock of Calvary or the rock of uh, Golgotha. The distance between these two is about 60 yards. How far is 60 yards? I walked it off this morning. If you go out here on this sidewalk, about even with this this back wall of the church, and look down the sidewalk to where the sidewalk ends at the grass, that's approximately 60 yards. It's not very far. Jesus was laid into a tomb that was right nearby, and today all of that is under one church. This is the entry to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. It's a rather, I think it's about a, a 15th century lock that still locks the door, uh, after uh, Suleiman captured the city, the, the key fell into the hands of an Arab family that still maintains control. They lock the door every night. They unlock it every morning. It's about a two-minute ceremony, and we always go there on one of the uh, tour groups. As you go in, you go up some stairs, and on the right you'll see uh, glass areas that cover the rock where you can look through and you can exp- see the exposed rock. And what's interesting is that this rock shows evidence of earthquake activity. And, of course, the scripture says an earthquake occurred at the time of the crucifixion. Here's another uh, picture, another angle showing the uh, exposed rock there. And then down below in a different room you have uh, this area where you can look through and see uh, the rock of Golgotha. So this is the location here, and I put in these uh, brown lines here to indicate where the roads were. Jesus was brought out from the praetorium to the side of Golgotha. You had a road going into the city here coming from the west and entering in through a gate here, 
and this would be where people walked by and would see those being uh, being uh, executed. So this is a, uh, I believe, the authentic site of where our Lord was crucified. Uh, the years of doubt. Uh, were because they misidentified this wall, thinking that because Jesus was crucified outside of the wall, that that was, should have been this wall. This is what led, uh, Gordon to misidentify the location. But at the time of Jesus, this is, this line here, this sort of orange line, this is where, uh, the wall was located. Then Jesus has arrived and they're going to give him some, um, something to dull the pain. They offer him wine with gall, the scripture says, but he did not drink it. He tasted it, according to Matthew, uh, but he wouldn't drink it because it knew that it would numb his senses. And so he wanted to, he knew he needed to fully, uh, be fully present with all of his faculties present to fight the spiritual battle that was going to take place on the cross. They mingled, uh, Matthew says they mingled gall. Mark says they mingled myrrh with it. They would have some different things that they would mix in with the wine that would function as uh, an anesthetic in order to numb the pain. This is documented by the Babylonian Talmud uh, in Tractate Sanhedrin. We read, Again, what of Rabbi Hia bin Ashi's dictum and Rabbi Hista's name, when one is led out to the execution, he is given a goblet of wine containing a grain of frankincense in order to benumb his senses. So this was the normal procedure. And then as we conclude today, I want to get into the first stage of the next section, the first three hours, the wrath of men as men uh, continue to ridicule and mock the Lord on the on the cross the first three hours, the second three hours, is when God will pour out his wrath upon Jesus. The crucifixion takes place. As they arrived at the crucifixion site, Simon has been carrying the um, patibulum. He's carrying it on his back. He lowers it to the ground. Jesus has been walking along. The Roman soldiers now must nail his hands to the crossbeam. I don't think they did this gently. I don't think they asked, well, Jesus, would you lie down on the ground and put your hands on the beam? They have abused him and beaten him. They probably knocked him down, which wouldn't take much force, forced him down on the ground, held his hands down. He did not resist. He didn't fight. He didn't protest his innocence because like a lamb before his shearers is is dumb, so Isaiah says, he opened not his mouth. And then they would have taken the spikes and nailed them through just below the base of the hand. The reason it wouldn't go into the palm is because it, the palms would not support the weight because of the way the bones radiate out from the wrist. But if you, and, and the word in the Greek describing the hand really covers everything from the forehand, um, from the forearm out uh, to the hand. And so they began to crucify him. There were four stages to the crucifixion. First of all, as we've already said, the criminal would carry the patibulum to the execution site. 
Second, he would be tied or nailed to the patibulum. Third, the beam would then be raised by forked poles. They would have these strong poles that soldiers on either side would hook them under the the cross beam and lift that up and then set it on top of the cross, on top of the stipus, which is the vertical post. Here is a diagram. There were different types of crosses that were used. Here's the capital T shape where they could still affix a... uh, a a title above it or it's actually the indictment against the criminal. This is the shape that we're often used to, a lowercase t type of shape. And then this was when they would just use a tree or a post uh, of that particular. And that was more common in Italy than it was in the Middle East. The two on the left were the most common ones on the Middle East. And I think the majority opinion today is that it was the Tau shape, the capital uh, T shape that we have here. And down below, you can see a picture of uh, someone being crucified on the cross where the sign listing the indictment that he was the Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews, is posted just above him. So it would not require the middle shape in order to uh, do that, as some have asserted. So this gives us a picture here of the uh, patibulum would be lifted up and set down on top of the uh, on top of the stipus, where then the crucifixion would take place. And so this would conclude the fourth stage of the crucifixion, where a tablet or some other sign would be that specified the crime that was the indictment would be nailed to the top of the cross or hung around his neck. And then the real suffering, the physical suffering, intensified, leading eventually to that last three-hour period on the cross. 1 Peter 2.24 tells us that he himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed with our heads bowed and our eyes closed our father we're thankful for the revelation that we have been given in your word and the gospels about what transpired with our lord's crucifixion the the horrors the pain the beatings all of that leading up to those 3 hours when he bore the sin penalty that all of that suffering beforehand did not have anything to do with his paying the sin penalty but it did demonstrate that he was who he claimed to be for he did not protest he did not open his mouth he quietly submitted humbled himself to the point of death as Paul tells us Father, we pray that if there's anyone here today or anyone listening online, that they would recognize that Jesus died for them. If there's anyone who has never trusted in Christ, that they would realize Jesus died for them. He died for every human being. He paid the penalty for every single sin in human history. There was no sin forgotten. There was no sin too great for the grace of God. There is no failure that cannot be overcome by the grace of God. Jesus paid it all. And Father, we pray that we might, as believers, understand, as Peter reminds us, 
that Jesus bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we might uh, live for him, that we might live for righteousness, that we are saved to reflect your glory and to live for you, to pursue spiritual maturity, that we might serve you with our lives, for we have been bought with a price. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.